John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 753.je1022, certificate number 2C... Oh, man. All right, that's the show, everybody. Start over. You... You have accessed entry 753... Dot JE1022, certificate number 26394. Ingve Malmsteen. Uh, Ken, we were talking earlier about rock and roll, and you said that for most of your uh, college years, you preferred jingle jangle pop, Fri- friendly, non non-abrasive uh, electric. The pop. folkier, the better. So, like the I'll listen to the Indigo Girls, but sometimes they get a little rowdy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, '80s. How did you feel about Ten Thousand Maniacs? That, to me, that was the perfect number of maniacs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, this is exactly right. Um, one of these songs mentions Verdi. Mm-hmm. Another one is about uh, the, the, the plight of domestic violence. Right. It's all very you know, smooth and melodic. So I'm guessing Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Perfect. Yeah, because it's got a little bit of funky backbeat. You, uh, can kind of, you can kind of experiment with moving your butt. What's the one, what's the one song? The, uh, um, you can shout it out. What's the Edie Brickell song? Yeah, wh- there it is. What I, what am, I is am what I am. am is what you are or what. She but also it. like REM and, right, right. and but when my friends would get into you know the Pixies or some of these later loud, quiet, loud bands, I would be like, now wait a second, I like the quiet. <laughs> but then oh, it gets loud. But it's gonna get loud. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Corgan, you let me down. <laughs> Uh, I was I was a very sensitive soul, I guess. But as you've gotten older, you were saying that you now appreciate. Louder. I find that as a, it's the opposite of what you would expect, where you get older and you just start, you know, getting mellower and mellower. And if it's too loud, you're too old. Right. But I find that now I have, you know, now I'm listening to Fugazi records that I never would have put on in high school. How did you get introduced to Fugazi? I had a, my friend's brother was very into that DC music scene. You know, because there's always in high school, there's never any shortage of young males 
who like loud, shouty music, right? Right. Were you one of those loud, shouty males? No, I wasn't. Well, I mean, you mean personally? Yes, I was loud and shouty. But uh, your musical tastes were more of a, you were a a poetic soul. Well, you know, I started... uh, With a jeweled tortoise. Because I started with a jeweled tortoise. No, I ended there. Uh, I was, my father was much older uh, than my peers' fathers, right? He was born in 1921. And I didn't have an older brother that introduced me to any rock music. And it didn't occur to my parents to introduce me to any kind of youth culture or make it available. Because your mom is Frances McDormand and almost famous. Right. As, and, we've, and, as we've covered. And my dad was still jitterbugging. <laughs> uh, I love when my dad, that's a, it's a real bonding moment for a father and son when your dad teaches you to Charleston. <laughs> and we had a lot of family songs like, Does the Spearmint Lose Its Flavor on the Bed Post Overnight? And Coney Island Washboard. You know, a lot of like, my dad would sing through a bullhorn. Dads love novelty songs. My dad was a little younger, so it was like the Purple People Eater yeah. and the Streak. Right. And, you know, dads love novelty songs. The Monster Mash. I don't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but um, my whole childhood, I get, you know, I heard pop music. I heard Elton John playing in the, uh, you know, the stereos of kids that were driving down to the reservoir to make out and smoke marijuana. Like, I understood there was music out there. But the music in our home was Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald. And it wasn't until I was in sixth grade, I had a friend over at my house, and he was like, put on some music. And I turned on the clock radio that was next to my bed, and um, out of it came like some kind of super corny, yacht rock? easy listening 70s yacht rock. And he was like, what is this garbage? And he turned the knob to 107.7, the FM K-Whale. K-Whale? K-Whale in Anchorage, what KWHL. Ah, the... oh, that's a good one. And uh, it was just at the start of I Am the Walrus. You know, this kind of like amazing creepy sound. And it's coming out of a, a one-cent speaker on my clock radio, but it blew my mind, like, like transformed me from then on. This is your superhero secret origin story. This is what happened. You were bitten by a radioactive walrus. And I was like... <laughs> what the heck is this music? And he was like, it's the Beatles. And I had this picture of like some lovable mop tops. And I thought, how, that, this music is coming out of them? <laughs> but I went back and I started listening to early rock and roll. And I actually listened to rock and roll sort of continuous or contiguously, right? I started with rock and roll in 1955, Buddy Holly and whatnot. And I listened to it through a natural progression. Were you chronologically kind of, did you make yourself a little curriculum? But it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't so formulaic. I just, I would listen to some music, I would enjoy it, and then I was ready for something a little more sophisticated. It's funny because so most, most people go backwards. Most people are like, I listen to R.E.M., who, who influenced them? I'll listen to the Velvet Underground and the Birds, who influenced them? Yeah. But you're going in the correct order. I started with like, oh, Susie, you know, Peggy Sue, Peggy Sue, right? I mean, I, I can't even remember it now, but yeah, I started with Peggy Sue and I worked my way up. And then when I reached the psychedelic era, I was just old enough that I was ready for my mind to be blown by rock and roll. And I remember taking, uh, playing psychedelic music and... And taking what? And, and, <laughs> and, and, and taking my teddy bear out and staring deep into his eyes. 
No, I would turn the lights off in my room and I would turn my little uh, black and white television on the UHF setting so it was just and then I would I'd put on She's So Heavy on my Sears record player and I would stare into the TV and try to fathom the unfathomable. Now, this is like a super villain origin story now. <laughs> this is like, this is Charles Manson talking. <laughs> but as time went on and I became more sophisticated and the, the 80s began. Did you get up to present day? <laughs> well, when I, when I entered seventh grade, I met a whole group of young boys who had much more sophisticated musical taste. And it, was, it also coincided with the dawn of what became the 80s metal scene. It was right about the time that Judas Priest released their seminal record, British Steel, and uh, Iron Maiden came out with Killers, and there were, there were several very important metal albums that came out right at that time. And I was not prepared for it. I hadn't been listening to Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath. I, wasn't, I didn't have a background in this kind of music, and it all hit me. I was still listening kind of to, you know, live at Leeds. And then this, like, new style, which had lyrics that were very Baroque, or they were about robots, they were about the Hall of the Mountain King, and it, it was a, an entirely new sound for me, and it, I leapfrogged, and then had to go back and fill in. I had to go back and fill in the music of the 80s, because I missed all the great new wave music, all the great sort of late 70s, early 80s pop music. So the contemporary bands you were listening to in high school were metal bands? Metal bands, right. That was all my friends as well. And, and I feel like what they admired was kind of the acrobatic guitar artistry. You know, they were like, listen to that run, like, listen to that solo. Like, they, it was like an athletic event to them. Were, were you playing guitar at the time, or? I was, um, my hands are um, just meat claws. <laughs> <laughs> this one is slightly more usable. This one is almost entirely useless. I, you know, I can, like, move things. <laughs> you're, you're, I can let the record show John is doing Boris Karloff in Frankenstein. I can hold the phone, and then this one I can. And for me to choose to be a guitar player was uh, is a hilarious career choice. <laughs> it's the long con. <laughs> one of the great it's things. A, it's a great bit you've been doing for twenty years. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout but it's funny because within rock and roll from the very beginning they've all there have always been kind of two schools and one of them really prized technical and musical ability, right? Uh, 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 saw rock music and pop music as part of this cultural continuum that where 
humanity has been investigating the the scales and the world of music and and really making art in the form of music. And the other side of rock and roll is the side that values what they imagine to be authentic spirit, the energy and unfettered expression of a person's soul and inner trauma and pain. And um, in the very earliest days of rock and roll and music, uh, pop music, electric guitar pop music, I think the, the music was fairly well crafted because it was often written by people other than the artists. But in the mid 60s, during the psychedelic era, the two worlds started to diverge. You know, you had what became the psychedelic music uh, that, that started to take elements of jazz, take elements of, of earlier forms that was very much arranged around technical knowledge. And when that turns into Steely Dan? It turns into progressive rock. It turns into prog. And then the other side, which, you know, was much more visceral, much more um, primitive. Uh, Iggy and, 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 right. and it turns into punk. And indie rock, the genre that I... Pioneered. Yeah, well, let's, created. Let's say. <laughs> like, was, was one of the leading artists of. Um, <laughs> Do you remember when you discovered indie rock between those two encyclopedia volumes? <laughs> You're like, there it is. Yeah. Hey, Ben Gibbard, get over here. It was, yeah, it was, uh, it was a pavement record uh, that, I, that I didn't understand. <laughs> Why did your mom put uh, Slam and Enchanted in your world book? <laughs> but uh, the brand of indie rock that I played, and Pavement's a great example of it, even if people did have technical ability, they tried to pretend that they didn't, right? I mean, that was Kurt Cobain's whole, whole act was that... Craft is the enemy. I don't even know how to do this. You know, um, so I, I it was funny that he would say that on stage. He'd be like, "Durr, I don't know how to do this," <laughs> and the audience would go, ah, "That's amazing!" And then he would OD. <laughs> um, oh, is that too soon? <laughs> Every night he would do that. That's amazing. <laughs> but um, but that that schism uh, between rock that was visceral and rock that was technical mm -hmm. that happened in the late '60s really um, set sort of rock and roll specifically on two different paths. And uh, it, it can kind of best be described as music to dance to and music to listen to. And progressive rock really wanted rock and roll to be a serious art form, wanted it to incorporate the scales and tones of, you know, the whole family of music. And it wanted to, they wanted to be making music that was that elevated the form. And they wanted acrylic paintings of spaceships. Well, and so that was all very much uh, like a, kind of an expression of the romantic era of classical music, right? The, the sort of fantastical... Um, sure. You know... Uh, you don't have centaurs right. in 1978. You have space stations. Something, something that connects to the old myths, the, the, the Norse ways. So there was a considerable, there was a prehistory of progressive rock uh, where they were gobbling up kind of everything that they could incorporate into it. And so there was a phase, throughout the 70s, we had a kind of, uh, this progression on the progressive side. So th in the 60s, there was proto-progressive rock music. Like, for example? Like the Moody Blues. Like Jethro Tull, who are bringing flutes, and orchestral elements. And, and, you know, the Beatles, of course, are influencing everybody with their choices. But the Beatles were 
more music hall influenced in their in their uh, orchestral arrangements. I blame Paul. It's always Paul. <laughs> uh, but the progressive rock started to bring orchestral elements that were written in this in a classical style. And this is all happening primarily in England. And we forget, we think of the rock and roll as a very American uh, style of music. But although all of those ideas sort of originate here musically and the, the, the combination of Appalachian music and the blues and, and African spirituals all happened here, it was always the British that were trying to push the form in various directions. We gave them an in. We sent Elvis into the army, we put Jerry Lee in jail, Killed Buddy Holly, Rock right. was dead, and, and, yet, and, they, and they saw an opening. <laughs> and they continued to see an opening. I mean, progressive rock is often, uh, it's often very colored by English traditional music or, or English traditional themes. So by the 70s, you had this kind of avant prog movement that was trying to incorporate, again, American jazz into rock. And it, there was an entire era of bands in the mid-70s that were making very serious music with the, the single-minded intention that no one enjoy it. Uh, and none of those bands survive, and if I named them, no one would recognize any of them. They're all, they all have names like Morgue Wumps. Or, I mean, they're, they're all terrible, unlistenable. But they were trying to advance, advance the form, and they were, uh, they were very much connected to one another. They had a scene... In fact, they had a, a scene called Rock in Opposition, uh, led by a band called Henry Cow. <laughs> uh, their, uh, their motto was, the music record companies don't want you to hear. But it wasn't that the record companies were trying to keep you from Henry Cow. It was that no one wanted to hear Henry Cow. <laughs> no one wanted their music. <laughs> but they... <laughs> right? And then people say, why didn't John ring the bell for Ken? <laughs> you forgot the bell. Boo. Uh, the, but Henry Cow and the, and the uh, rock and opposition movement actually had a big festival. It became very popular in, somewhat predictably, in Germany. Um, influenced a whole, uh, a whole new wave of unlistenable German bands. And then after avant Prague, which no one liked, a new movement sort of developed out of that, which was called the neo-progressive Prague movement. And so if you study rock enough, it just turns into political theory, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> the neo-progressives, I can't even follow this. So what are some examples of, what, what's this music like? Well, so the, the most famous neo-progressive band was a band called Marillion. And Marillion exists even still. And Marillion, although not especially popular themselves, influenced a lot of bands that followed. And, and what we're talking about is a, the incorporation of different musical scales than would normally be found in rock and roll. So what characterizes blues music is, I mean, what's called the blues it's scale. A, it's a scale of music. Right. And, and blues notes are uh, instances where you flat the fifth in a chord or you flat the third, and it creates that well, that mood. Um, but there are a ton of other scales in music. And as progressive rock progressed, you know, they, they would add all these different scales. And I can, I can list some for you. Got to catch them all. As you... So blues is kind of a minor pentatonic scale. 
But in rock, they started to add the Aeolian scale and the Dorian scale and then the Mixolydian scale. Now, when I was in high school and the other guitar players were sitting around talking about the Dorian scale and the Mixolydian scale, I had no idea what they were talking about. And when anyone, when anyone would say Mixolydian, they, they would say it as a joke. Like, it was a laugh line, right? We'd be talking about, well, this is a Dorian scale, and then somebody would go, ha, ha, Mixolydian. And everyone would crack up. I had no idea what they were laughing at uh, because I was still working on flatting my thirds. You would laugh anyway, though. You'd be like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I would, of course. <laughs> That's a good one, Greg. I just, I just wanted to have friends. Um, but the neo-progressive rock era, although Marillion was kind of the only band from that genre to, like, that, that I guess fully embodied neo-progressivism, the themes of neo-progressive music are visible in the music of Rush, for instance. Uh, of Iron Maiden, where there are a lot of tempo changes, there are a lot of uh, sort of themes of the supernatural or otherworldly fantasy themes. So it's lyrical as well. It's not just musical approach. It's lyrical. It's the, it's the entire experience of the band. And, and I think in the earlier stages of progressive rock, the idea was that all the band was kind of soloing and playing off of each other. But neo-progressive music started to move into a realm where in incorporating the style of blues, where the, each instrument would solo, it would have a feature, right? The lead guitar started to become more prevalent in neo-progressive rock, rather than just flute solos and, you know, everybody, as my dad would say, like, everybody solo all at once. That was his description of any jazz that came after 1950. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So my, my impression that this is all, this, a lot of this music is about technique and virtuosity. Right, which is in marked contrast to what was happening on the other side of the rock. Sure. If you know, scene. You got the Ramones doing the you know, kind of bubblegum music with three chords. And the New York Dolls and whatnot. And I think in the in the the mythology of rock music, progressive rock is seen as having been killed by punk, right? Progressive rock what was not. It has very, no balls. How can it propagate itself? Right? <laughs> you like got one really low boo. <laughs> Like, you can go home and listen to your Rush records. They're still there. <laughs> I, but, but that's a, a real simplification of what happened, right? Punk landed, but the rock critics and, and most rock consumers already didn't like prog music. Um, it wasn't selling. It was panned. 
universally panned. It wasn't that punk came in and gave people what they had been lacking because Emerson, Lake, and Palmer wasn't providing it. It was, <laughs> you know, that these were two very different sides of the, of the world. And punk rose, but, but progressive rock was, was already morphing into something else. And it was already maybe a smaller subculture, like a more, a more of a niche thing? So out of the progressive rock, so the like overburdened, um, pretentious progressive rock world, what started to burble up out of it was metal, heavy metal. And heavy metal was very concerned with technique, very concerned with skill. And you, you can see sort of the proto-metal bands, Judas Priest being the best example, where in their early days, um, Judas Priest were wearing bell-bottom jeans. They had long operatic music with, with long stretches where somebody was just ringing some chimes. Um, there was, I think maybe there was a member of the band that was just a dancer. Is that why it's called heavy metal? Because of all the chimes and whatnot? All the cowbell? We're only going to use instruments made of metal. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, uh, like have asked, why is it called heavy metal? I remember going into the record store and uh, asking the guy behind the counter, like, can you show me some heavy metal? This was during this period where I'm, I'm just turned on to it and now I want everything. And he gave me some long boring music store employee lecture about how there is no such thing. <laughs> right? But metal started right, you know, kind of simultaneously with punk to become a, a, a movement of like sort of an underground male working class European expression of economic angst and and, and, and it, youthful angst, right? Well, and in a way, like almost... Teenagers like, feel like yelling all the time. Teenagers feel like yelling all the time, that's right. Any, any moment they don't, they have triumphed over themselves. And, but they really prized skill, whereas kids that were listening to punk rock were uh, contemptuous of skill. They wanted noise. These metal guys wanted skill. And Eddie Van Halen came out of the United States playing this extremely uh, Baroque style. But then... Enter onto the scene a Swedish guitar player, 20 years old, by the name of Ingve Malmsteen. Now here we are at the end of the show, and I have introduced the topic. We did it! The show ends when Mr. and Mrs. Malmsteen <laughs> have a glass of wine and conceive young Ingve. <laughs> so to condense the story of Ingve Malmsteen into just a few minutes, uh, Ingve was a, a, a prodigy and was able to play really what can only be described as classical music on an electric guitar. And with Is that what he was trying to do? Like he was. He always said he wasn't into Jimi Hendrix. His favorite guitar player was Richie Blackmore, who was uh, the guitar player of Deep, Deep Purple, Purple, and he was very much kind of one of the most sort of elaborate and Baroque guitars. It's a cerebral kind of a thing, right? right? And Ingve wanted to wanted to take that to its highest expression. He wanted to bring, his, his real favorite uh, musicians were uh, Paganini, right? And um, He liked Bach, right? He, he was, because that's the kind of mathematical precision. Nerds like Bach. Super into Bach. And nerds like Bach, that's right. So Ingve wanted to communicate all that music, but within this sort of heavy metal universe. And he brought into metal a style of soloing and a style of composition that almost completely excluded the blues. 
it no longer had this sort of emotional... So, uh, so it's racist. <laughs> it's, it's classical music plus heavy metal plus a little racism. Well, in, in fact, like it, it draws from that 19th century classical tradition, which was very nationalistic. Right? True. This is Wagner. This was a part of the Romantic era was also very connected to the idea of your people, your uh, your narrow culture. And he's not consciously thinking, I'm going to get rid of this jungle music. He, it's, just what he, it's just what speaks to him, right? He was a very arrogant Swede. <laughs> I don't know if you have any personal connections or experiences with arrogant Swedes. Did you ever go, to, did you ever go backpacking? I've been to Stockholm yeah, once. so there you go. Everyone look, is very good-looking with their severe glasses frames in the, in the subway. So he, he very much, I mean, I, although I don't, I don't think he's ever expressed any nationalistic opinions, but there was, because within this metal culture, um, it was not a political culture. If you look at all of this new, new wave of British heavy metal or this heavy metal of the time, um, although it's all white males, there's absolutely no misogynistic content there's no racist content. Clapton-style nativism. Cause, yeah, yeah, there's none, none of that. None of, none. It was the guys who actually were playing the blues that were saying awful things. And, and <laughs> later on, uh, you know, there, there became sort of uh, like black metal bands and bands that did take politics into... But during this era, it's really surprising how, how, how little the music conformed to what your expectations would be of a bunch of angry young white guys playing heavy music. Well, I think to the layperson, they'd be confused that you even can bridge classical music and heavy metal. Right. You know, that doesn't seem like, they seem like uneasy bedfellows. Well, and Ingve did a very unusual thing, which is he took the fretboard of his guitar, and between the frets, he would scallop the wood, scallop the fretboard, so that if you were holding a note uh, like you would in a normal guitar, you could actually press down harder on the string and make the note goes sharp just because there he had created this extra space for the string to travel and this was an innovation of Ingve Malmsteen and if you buy his signature model Stratocaster it comes with these scalloped frets I have tried to play it and I just uh, every chord sounds totally out of tune because I as soon as I press have on a lot the, more precision as I, to how hard you press right? on the string with my lobster claw and everything is <laughs> but he had this delicacy this uh I mean, this tremendous Long Swedish fingers. That he could, he could make chords and play notes and do it so delicately that, that the note fretted cleanly but didn't, but he wasn't pressing into it. So what do guitar people think of him? Is he in the Pantheon? He's routinely in the top 10 guitarists of all time lists. But in a, I, I think in a very crucial way, he ruined rock and roll. <laughs> on, the, on the plus side, he's on a lot of top 10 lists. If you listen to the metal of the 80s, it became increasingly soulless music. And like, uh, if, you, if you listen to Kurt Hammett, local San Francisco guitar player Woo. of the band Metallica, uh, and you try to find any soul in his guitar playing, you will search a long time. <laughs> Sometimes he accidentally plays a note that sounds like it has some soul. <laughs> But then you see him wince and you realize <laughs> he didn't mean it. He immediately feels bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that was true of a lot of the bands of the 80s. Their technical skill and their technical ability, but expressed through this like sort of crazy uh, 
Locrian mode, Phrygian mode uh, guitars playing, uh, it took out whatever that emotionality is that's intrinsic to certain scales and intrinsic to certain kinds of music. The technique robbed the, the tunes of their heart. And it really wasn't until, and, and I'm expressing a bias here, but it wasn't until Guns N' Roses re-entered re the music scene or entered the music scene just basically playing electric blues. Right, they, they're like, you know, we'll put some blues and some glam back into yeah. what would otherwise be guitar metal. That what had become this kind of like very, very slick, very glossy, very technique-oriented, dispassionate, and ultimately extremely misogynistic and extremely, you know, like pretty culturally lame music. I don't know if you've seen the video for Warren's Cherry Pie recently, <laughs> but, it, uh, but it is not very woke. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not saying that Guns N' Roses like brought wokeness to the, to the metal scene, but, but certainly their music reintroduced a passionateness to, to rock and roll. So you think it almost seems like a creative dead end? He still plays, right? He does, and he's still enormously popular. I mean, what he did in was... In Sweden or... In Sweden and around the world. With guitar nerds everywhere. What he introduced was the idea that a guitar player, and there are dozens of them, I couldn't even name them, but there are dozens of guitar players who are famous and popular with their audience simply because they, I mean, they'll just stand up here and play the guitar and there are no, there are no songs, there's no lyrics. It's just guitar pyrotechnics. And there's, did he, did there's he have a band? Like he, would he, have, he would have lead singers, but they wouldn't get along because he's the show, I guess. You know, nobody likes Yngwie. <laughs> um, I love that sitcom, Nobody Likes Yngwie. <laughs> it's been number one hit in Sweden for like 18 years. And, and he knows that he, he's, he's pretty, uh, pretty self-effacing about his disagreeableness. Um, in Sweden, I think he's still kind of a big star. He's handsome. So to him, it's the purity above all. But even Richie Blackmore, uh, Richie Blackmore went on record saying like, you know, I really like the guy. And, uh, and I admire the fact that he is, like, he claims to have taken a lot from me. But I find his music very disagreeable. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes Ingve Malmsteen, entry 753.je1022, certificate number 26394, in the omnibus. We did it. How much time do we have? It's 810. We have negative 10 minutes.